Health Matters with Karen Key. And a very good evening to you and welcome to this week's edition of Health Matters. On the show this evening, I'll be chatting with Professor Henny Boerter, Head of Gynecological Oncology at the University of Stellenbosch, about human papillomavirus, or HPV, and giving you the latest information on this very common virus. Peter Mishlape, General Manager of Beckton Dickinson, Eastern Southern Africa, will be on the line, and we'll be talking about a recent healthcare workers' safety summit where the safety of doctors and nurses was on the agenda. Late last year, I spoke about the new Da Vinci machine which had arrived in South Africa. Well, now it's installed in two hospitals, one in Cape Town and one in Johannesburg, and it's being used successfully to perform surgery on prostate cancer patients. And this evening, I'll be speaking with Dr. Marius Conradi, a urologist at the Netcare Waterfall City Hospital, about prostate cancer and the state-of-the-art Da Vinci technology. And then I'll be joined by Armando Loreiro, who was the first person to have a prostatectomy with the Da Vinci system at Netcare Waterfall City Hospital in Midrand. And just a reminder that there's now a list of available documents for Health Matters. Just go to Facebook page, Health Matters on SAFM. And if you'd like any of those, post a message on Facebook. But please do remember to include your email address so I can send them to you. And if you don't have access to Facebook, drop me an email to healthmatters at safm.co.za and I'll send you the list and then you can choose which documents you'd like and I'll send those to you. Well, that's the lineup for this evening. I do hope you'll stay with me and enjoy the show here on SAFM. Health Matters with Karen Key. Well, HPV is a hardy virus which is easily transmittable. It's responsible for a number of diseases, many of them cancers, in both girls and boys, women and men. And there are about 30 to 40 types of HPV that affect the genital area. To tell us more, I'm joined now by Professor Henny Boerter, Head of Gynecological Oncology at the University of Stellenbosch. Professor Boerter, good evening. Welcome to the show. Uh, good evening, Karen. I think the most important point to make, which I mentioned in my introduction, was I think up until now a lot of people considered HPV to be a female thing. And yet we talk about it as being something we should protect our young girls against, but yet it is something that affects men and boys. Uh, yes, Karen, it's a, uh, it's a virus that affects um, almost all of us during our lifetime. Um, as you've mentioned, certain of these um, HPV types or subtypes are associated with cancer. Um, and it affects mostly uh, women in the form of cervical cancer, but there's definitely a significant number of cancers in men which is also associated with, um, with HPV uh, virus infection including genital cancers, but also about one in four or one in five head and neck cancers are associated with uh, even papillomavirus infection. So how is this transmitted then? Um, It's a a very uh, effective uh, virus to spread from person to person, uh, person to person, and you only need um, epithelium or skin-to-skin contact uh, to to spread the virus. Um, Mostly the, the Types that cause genital cancers will be spread through sexual intercourse, um, but it can also be spread just by by normal skin-to-skin contact. The thing about HPV, though, is it's one of those things that it could potentially be a silent killer because there are oftentimes no symptoms. That's correct. I mean, there are certain of the um, HPV types that cause um, things like genital warts, which you can see, um, but most of the infections will not be Symptomatic, in other words, people won't know that they they are uh, infected with human papillomavirus. Is this something that then you only pick up when something bad starts to happen? 
Uh, yes, fortunately, um, in women, we can see some of those changes um, before it becomes a cancer, and that's where uh, something like a, uh, what is known as a pap smear comes in quite handy because um, the human papillomavirus infection, if it lingers for a certain amount of time in the body, it can cause abnormal cells, which we can then pick up on a pap smear, um, and if it's treated appropriately, it can prevent the cancer from developing. We don't have similar things for men, unfortunately. Um, so that's one of the one of the, another reason why we should uh, thinking we we should be thinking about vaccinating men as well. So I mean, there was quite a lot of talk a year or so ago about the fact that HPV vaccinations are now available for our young girls, and I was quite amazed to see that the the individuals that are most at risk are between the ages of fifteen to twenty four. Um, that is for getting the viral infection. Mm. I mean, that, that doesn't mean that those young people are the people that will um, get the cancer. No. It takes often many years for the infection to um, cause abnormal cells, which eventually will lead to a, to a cancer. So the reason why we vaccinate young people, or even younger than that, is that we want to prevent infection in the first instance. Um, so the vaccination policy in South Africa is to vaccinate girls just before they leave primary school, probably around the age of nine. Um, and... Hopefully in future, uh, we'll also uh, vaccinate um, boys to prevent um, HPV in HPV disease in men, but also partly um, to protect girls, um, their future partners. Now, if, if there's nothing that will tr- it'll trigger you off to know that a man has HPV, what should men be looking out for? Well, that is quite difficult. Um, the The infection with HPV does not cause any um, significant symptoms. Um, some of the subtypes of HPV can cause um, genital warts, like I've mentioned previously, but most of them are silent infections. And we don't have good tests to determine the risk in men. Um, and that's uh, partly one of the reasons why they started vaccinating all the boys in Australia and Austria recently. Um, and um, I think the rest of the world will follow in, in, the, in the next few years. But at the moment, the vaccine is only available at, I would imagine, government hospitals for girls. Um, the government um, at the moment only provides uh, a school-based program for girls. Um, it's partly because of, um, I mean, the cost-benefit um, must be um, acceptable for the government to introduce a new program. But I think as the vaccines um, hopefully become less expensive um, and... Um, as it becomes more widely available, we will hopefully eventually vaccinate boys as well. Now, mention the age that are most vulnerable, this 15 to 24. What about people older than that? Is it too late for them to be vaccinated, or is it still something that older people could still do? Uh, d- definitely. I mean, there's no um, harm in getting the vaccine. Um, it, just on a population basis, it becomes less effective to do it at a later age. For individual people, um, it makes sense to get the vaccine um, even up to the age of, some people say, in their 40s. Um, but the, the best time to get the vaccine is before you become exposed to the virus. So if, if you want to still go and do it, it's not going to do you any harm now? It's not going to do any harm. Um, and you can certainly go to any pharmacy um, and get, a, uh, get the vaccine um, from any commercial pharmacy. Now, there are two, there's apparently two types of, of HPV vaccine at the yeah. moment. Yeah. But it doesn't cover everything. Um, the, the current generation of vaccines um, cover the most important um, oncogenic or cancer-causing um, uh, subtypes, which are 16 and 18. 
Um, and then one of the vaccines will also protect against subtype 6 and 11, which cause genital warts. Uh, we're hoping to get a new generation of vaccines soon that will protect against more of the cancer-causing types. Um, but, but to reassure you, by far the most important um, uh, cancer-causing types, number 16 and 18, uh, will be covered by both the commercially available vaccines. And I was actually reading some some information here that said that many women are diagnosed with cervical cancer in their mid to late 30s and that many of those women were most likely exposed to cervical cancer causing HPV types during their teens and their 20s. Um, that is correct. I mean, most, most people become um, infected with HPV quite early um, in their, let's call it, sexual career um, because it's such an effective um, virus. Um, but it depends a little bit on the um, exact uh, subtype of the HPV. It depends on a person's genetics, on their immunity, um, to determine how quickly an infection will um, produce abnormal cells that can lead to cancer. Um, so it does not necessarily follow that if somebody develops a cancer at a young age that she was exposed um, at a very young age. It's not sort of a linear association. Are you seeing an increase in people being diagnosed with HPV? Um, we've got an enormous problem in South Africa. Um, we um, can see um, just in the number of women diagnosed with abnormal pap smears um, every, every year um, that there's uh, a huge problem. But in people with lower immunity, um, and that includes everybody with HIV infection, the risk for getting persistent um, HPV infection is, is much higher. Um, and they're often also infected with multiple types, um, which makes the risk to develop cancer um, so much more. Um, uh, so in, in the HIV-infected um, population, we see an enormous problem with, with, with cervical cancer and with other HPV-associated cancers. But at least now there is something that we can do to a point. Yes, and I think that's one of the one of the bits of good news that we can really celebrate, and that the, this is the fact that we we will hopefully, with the vaccines, um, make a huge difference to the, the the current young generation. Hopefully, within the next twenty years, we'll see a significant reduction in HPV-associated cancers, and if we can vaccinate enough people in the population, um, then you get something called herd immunity, which means that there's no um, individual place for a virus to hide and you can event eventually even eradicate a disease in such a way. So the potential is there that this technology could lead to an eradication of, of cervical cancer, similar to what, what has happened to smallpox um, and um, to, a, to a large extent to polio as well. We just need the price to come down first. Yeah, well, price is one is one important factor, but also to try, even if, even if the vaccine is, is free of charge at the moment, I think we will still have an enormous challenge to get the vaccine actually into the arms of young people um, because it, it takes a lot of organization to get um, to get a vaccine program running effectively. And we, we're vaccinating quite a difficult group of young people. It's not infants. They're in, in school, so it's a bit more difficult to do. But I'm sure we, we, we can successfully do uh, vaccination program in, in teenagers. Well, at least we're on the right path now. Yes, uh, certainly, and I think we're in good company. Most of the developed nations in the world um, has a national uh, vaccination policy, um, and I think the, the, the challenge would be to actually get it done properly.
Well, that's a little bit of good news after all the bad we have these days. So thank you very much indeed for joining us on the show this evening, Professor. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for your time. Thanks good night to you. Professor Heli Boerter is Head of Gynecological Oncology at the University of Stellenbosch. For more information on HPV-related diseases, you can visit www.hpv.co.za. Health Matters with Karen Key. Recently, a healthcare workers' safety summit was held in Cape Town where the safety of doctors and nurses was on the agenda. To tell us more, I'm joined now by Peter Mishlape, the general manager of Beckton Dickinson, East and Southern Africa. And Beckton Dickinson is an established global advocate for the safety of healthcare workers. Peter, good evening. Welcome to the show. Yes, good evening to you and to your listeners. I think one of these healthcare summits, we've had it before, but I mean, they are sort of long overdue to have more of these. Yeah, in fact, just to give you a bit of a background, is, uh, we had one last year which was national, followed by quarterly roundtable discussions, dialogue around healthcare worker safety in the, in, the, in the hospitals and clinics, and then we had a follow-up in one in Devon and one in Cape Town. In fact, we've got a one coming, uh, another annual one coming on the 20, 20th of August this year, which is... Uh, an annual event, you know, driving safety for healthcare workers in in the environment where they work. You know, those of us who don't live with this kind of thing every day, I was actually quite horrified to read that healthcare workers, in some cases, could be exposed to 30 potentially dangerous infections. Are things things like HIV, hepatitis B, hepatitis C, all tuberculosis? I mean, there's all sorts of things. That's uh, that's indeed, I mean, very very correct. Every day, healthcare workers in this country go to work. They are at risk of uh, contracting all this, uh, um, I mean, contracting all these uh, diseases such as hepatitis B and C, um, HIV, TB, at, you know, the workplace. Um, without, you know, the good uh, policies in place, the, the right education and awareness, uh, you know, the risk is unfortunately will escalate. You know, especially in South Africa, we... <clears throat> the burden of disease is quite, it's among the highest in the world. And I think we all know about needle stick injuries. I think we watch, you see this sort of thing on television in drama things that you watch. So you're aware of that. But I don't think what we're all that aware of is all these airborne things that, that the professionals working in hospitals are also possibly, you know, going to be become infected with. Yeah, I think that's, uh, <clears throat> that's where, excuse me, that's where really the, the problem, of, there's an education and training problem where, in our experience working with uh, hospitals, healthcare workers, we have seen that, you know, the the infections tend to peak, you know, at certain times. For instance, when you get a new new nurses, new doctors coming into the how to work in the hospital the first time, you know, you see that going up in a unusual way, and mainly driven by lack of education and uh, training on how to take care of themselves from a, a, a safety standpoint. For instance, uh, you know, safe use of uh, uh, shops, you know, shop disposal, containers and, and all that. You know, that's, uh, that, that's very key. Th- that has been the, really the focus of uh, the, this uh, safety summit that we have. What the main focus was, uh, you know, around uh, awareness and education really understanding the nature and the risk involved and uh, really act, the second one looking at uh, um, access and sharing of information 
among because among healthcare workers because we had a um, all levels of healthcare workers, uh, public and private sector coming together, and the the second biggest you know focus area was looking at a creation of culture of safety, you know looking at really making sure that is not only one or two centers or hospitals that are having you know high standard policies and procedures that are in place it, it becomes a national way of of doing things the policies are standard across the country um the processes and procedures are standard and also availability of safety engineered medical devices that obviously eliminate or pre- prevent needle stick injuries uh, in the workplace and uh, the third one, looking at uh, really advocacy and collective action. We, I think, as, as a company that has been around for 118 years, we obviously playing a very catalyst role in this area, being the company that was the first company to basically produce the uh, syringes and needles. And, um, and also, having been the first company, I mean, to um, introduce the injection device for penicillin you may recall when penicillin was discovered you know so we understand the space and we work with the healthcare workers to make sure that you know the safety awareness is is quite high while on the other hand uh, providing the the safety engineered devices to protect healthcare workers just to give people some idea, there was a World Health Organization report that estimated that there are some 170, that's 170 million injections are administered annually for medical purposes in South Africa. I mean, you can imagine how many people are putting themselves at risk if they don't know what they're doing properly. That's, uh, that's correct. That's correct indeed. I mean, the, 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 the amount of exposure, you know, to healthcare workers is quite, quite huge. That's why the need for providing the right tools and education and an awareness and the policy in the workplace is, is very key. Are, are the hospitals sort of putting measures in place, education programs? It's not just the doctors and the nurses. I mean, they're the cleaning <clears throat> staff, they're the patients, I suppose, laboratory workers. It's, all, it's across the board. What are the education programs looking like in our hospi- hospitals <clears throat> at the moment? It's, uh, it's quite sporadic. I mean, in some cases, it's quite good and, and very impressive. In some places, it's very, very mediocre. So the biggest drive with uh, this uh, safety summit has been to try and, you know, drive uh, availability of policy and standards that are similar across the board that are much more enforceable. You know, eventually, I mean, what this country is looking for is, uh, you know, to enact the policy in, you know, safety policy in, you know, healthcare environment just like uh, in in the uk or in in europe and the usa where policies have been enacted that you know if you're to give injections or anything that has to do with shops you use you know uh device medical devices that are safe and that will protect healthcare worker uh from needle stick injuries and unfortunately we still don't have you know these measures in this country but we I think we're working there towards the, that goal. The other big concern, though, Peter, and it's something that I've read about it here in Cape Town twice in the last year or so, is this problem with medical waste that's being dumped, that isn't being properly disposed of. I mean, that is causing a huge problem. <clears throat> that's, that, you're right. I mean, that's, that's a big problem. That, that is why 
the whole approach towards healthcare worker safety is not just looking at, you know, nurses and doctors. You look at, you know, other support staff in the healthcare environment. You look at the um, just the normal laborers who are tasked to remove healthcare waste. But that that is why it's very very important to make sure that the shop disposable containers are also, you know, disposed and sealed in the right way and, 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 and education targeted at healthcare workers that they dispose those shops and 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 needles and syringes in a way that, you know, is not endangering, you know, other healthcare workers, for instance, carrying the linen. Um, and only to find that in the middle of uh, you know, the sheet or mm-hmm. something there's a, a long shop that is sticking them. So it's it's an education that is really targeted at all healthcare workers, from nurses to laborers removing or up to the, the laundry. You mentioned that there's another one of these summits coming up in August. Um, do you see a significant sort of difference after one of these summits? Do you see more things being put into place after you've had one of these summits? Um, yes. I mean, these are designed in a way that is uh, the one is built on the next one with a clear milestone that, that we move in towards. For instance, the first one we had last year, August, was uh, um, we left the summit with uh, the understanding that there were, you know, three key things that were lacking. One was, uh, you know, lack of policy in the country. Uh, the second one was, uh, you know, lack of uh, um, data, you know, because everybody was saying, okay, I understand the problem at my public or private hospital. For instance, one large um, academic hospital in Gauteng was reporting that, you know, out of uh, every hundred uh, healthcare workers, uh, seven get, you know, stuck by the needles. So the the whole idea was to build data around the actual magnitude of the problem, and and the third one was saying we need to provide the right devices and education need to be increase to make sure that the education and training in the workplace is, uh, you know, it's quite a consistent and uh, it's regular so, so that healthcare workers are very vigilant when, you know, doing this procedure so they don't get uh, stuck by needles and get infected by HIV or hepatitis B or C. Well, I really like the fact that we're doing something now to help our healthcare workers because they're the ones that are at the front line when we end up in hospital or need some help. And it's good to keep them going healthily and well because we don't need them getting sick. Especially so in this country where there's mm, a shortage of absolutely, healthcare workers. Absolutely. So it's nice to know that these summits are making a difference. And I hope I look forward to hearing what comes out of the next one. You're welcome. Thank you so much for your time this evening. Thank you very much. Thank Jeff. you, Peter. Good night to you. Good night. Peter Mishlape is the general manager of Beckton Dickinson Eastern Southern Africa, and Beckton Dickinson is an established global advocate for the safety of healthcare workers. For more information, you can take a look at www.bd.com. Health Matters with Karen Key. Well, late last year, I spoke about the new Da Vinci machine, which had arrived in South Africa. Well, now it's installed in two hospitals, one in Cape Town and one in Johannesburg, and it's being used successfully to perform surgery on prostate cancer patients. I'm joined now by Dr. Marius Conradi, a urologist at the Netcare Waterfall City Hospital. Dr. Conradi, good evening. Welcome to the show. Good evening, Karen. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you. It's rather exciting having all these new toys to play with. 
absolutely. I think we made some history bringing in this new technology into into South Africa. Uh, the, the new Da Vinci machine has been available in, in internationally on, on for about ten years, and we're very excited to have it for the first time in South Africa. Now, what is the difference operating with one of these or operating how you used to in the past? <clears throat> well, I think the big difference is that um, in the past we we did open surgery. And um, there was a huge leap between open surgery and minimally invasive surgery, especially with uh, urology. Um, and the Da Vinci machine uh, proved itself to be this uh, next extension of technology where we could do minimally invasive surgery um, by removing the prostate, especially with, uh, you know, cancer of the prostate, um, <clears throat> keeping in mind that you have to do as minimal damage to the surrounding organs and, um, uh, you know, removing the cancer as a whole, but preserving bladder function and erectile function for the patient. Now, when people hear about robotic surgery, it's not as if you sort of program the thing and it goes off and does it by itself. You're working with the machine. It's not doing it something and you're looking out through a window, somebody watching it. Yes. <clears throat> so what we, how to explain it is the, the robot will be positioned at the bedside of the patient and the, the robotic arms, there's uh, four arms that will be inserted into the, the, the cavity of the abdomen um, and then the surgeon will sit distant on a console and he will control each of these arms um, by manipulating the arms but the nice thing about the robot is there is um, motion um, scaling and uh, you know it, it can also take away bad movements and mistakes and stuff like that so you can actually perform much more accurate surgery, and it has a, the 3D stereoscopic viewer where you can see the anatomy on the inside so much more clearer because it's in three dimensions. So combine this with the, the, the robotic arms that's uh, much more movable on the inside of the abdomen, you can do much more accurate surgery. Now, but listening to what you're explaining there, I mean, this isn't everybody can just walk in and suddenly do this. You have to, obviously, there's a lot of training involved. So how many of you in South Africa at the moment are trained to use this machine? At the moment, there is, I think, about four or five surgeons in, in um, Cape Town that's doing the surgery, and there's a similar amount in, in uh, Johannesburg that's been trained. And um, the whole thing has been set in motion by Netcare that saw the opportunity to, you know, bring this technology to South Africa. And... Um, so I think in Cape Town and at the Netcare hospitals in Cape Town and, so, and, and Johannesburg, there's about 10 surgeons overall that's doing it. The, the, the Waterfall um, Hospital um, in Midrand is, uh, you know, trying to draw most of the Gauteng area uh, prostate cancers to, to perform the surgery. And I believe Chris Barnard in Cape Town is doing similar um, surgery. Now, you mentioned at the beginning some of the um, the good parts about being able to use the, the Da Vinci. And, and also, I mean, it's, you mentioned things like it, it, it ensures that the nerves that control erectile dysfunction are better preserved and it's improved early outcomes from urinary continence point of view. And obviously, the recovery time, I'm sure, must be a lot quicker as well. Yeah, I think the, the, the best, best to ex describe this, the main advantage of minimally invasive surgery is obviously to get the patient back to work as, as quickly as possible. But um, if we treat cancer nowadays, you just don't want to treat the cancer per se, but you want to uh, provide quality of life. Now, quality of life means two things in prostate cancer. The ability to be continent, your bladder must still be functioning like normal. And secondly, um, 
you, you want to maintain your erectile function. And um, <clears throat> we, we see that, you know, almost like an international trend where we diagnose these prostate cancers at a much earlier stage. So for, the, for these young men, and we talk about, you know, men in their late 40s and 50s, they still got active lives, they still got a, uh, you know, a relationship, uh, they, the, the marriage, and they have to maintain that uh, quality of life. So with a robot, we can spare the nerves that um, allow bladder function and erectile function. So we can spare it much more accurately with this um, new technology. And, 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 and I think that is the, the beauty of this robot, is providing quality of life for the patient, not just removing the cancer, but giving them a second chance in life. Also, I mean, I read stuff about reduced blood loss and all that, so, um, you know, less need for a blood transfusion. So it makes the whole procedure a lot safer by the sounds of it as well. Absolutely. I think um, <clears throat> there's, a, there's a, definitely a learning curve, but we see that internationally, if you look at the international results, you know, these patients go home on average on day two or day three. And, um, I mean, that is like a real contrast to the past where these patients would lie a couple of days in the hospital. They, they may stay in an ICU for for extended period of time, receive blood transfusion. So we definitely, with the robot, we're closer to provide them with a quicker recovery, sending them home. They don't risk a blood transfusion. And, um, you know, they definitely the recovery period is much faster. Now, I know we're using it at the moment for dealing with prostate issues. But will at some point, will this be used for other procedures? I've ha- actually had a call from a listener who's phoned in, wants to know if it could be used for non-cancerous things like um, transurethral resectioning of prostate or benign prostatic hyperplasia. Is it likely to be work- used for anything else in the future? Yes, I think one should be very careful not to um, apply it in a, in, you know, in, a, in a wrong application for what it's designed for. But um, we look at extending it to treat kidney cancer, where we want to remove only part of the kidney as opposed to removing the whole kidney. And I think that is the nice thing about robot uh, is where we can do finer reconstructive surgery of the urinary tract much more accurately as in, in the past. Um, <clears throat> uh, and also if you consider not just uh, uh, kidney cancer, but we can treat other um, congenital, uh, congenital abnormalities of the kidney where there's a blockage at the kidney, uh, we call it a, a you know, PUJ obstruction or pelvic ureteric junction obstruction, where there's a, a blockage between the kidney and the and the, the ureter that goes down to the ureter, uh, to the bladder, we can fix that. Um, as well as with patients, females with pelvic organ prolapse, <clears throat> where we have to do the delicate surgery to, to elevate and fixate, uh, you know, the pelvic organs, the vagina and the bladder in the normal position. And for this long uh, reconstructive procedure, the, the robot is ideal to, to perform more accurate surgery and, you know, the patients recover so much better and faster. Now, having something like this in the hospitals now in South Africa, in two of the hospitals here, it must be developing local medical skills quite well as well because, I mean, a, a lot of people, I would assume, are going to be trained on this. Yeah, I, I think um, <clears throat> that I'll leave it up to... The hospitals that develop or had the insight to provide mm. the service, um, definitely more doctors and, and, and especially other disciplines as well will come on board, uh, definitely gynecologists. But that's a slow process. I think we want to develop it in, in a well-controlled manner so that the doctors that really want to super-specialize in 
um, you know, in the past we had general practitioners and then specialists, and we're entering a new phase where the people, the specialists actually super specialize into a specialized field. And um, I think this is what the robot is. It's not for for, for, for the general surgeon uh, or, well, let's call it for all the surgeons or all the urologists out there, but it would be for people that have a real interest in providing this type of service and then um, has the time and, and shows the determination and effort to go and study this further to provide the service. How many procedures have you personally done on this machine? Well, you know, we're in the beginning of phase, so it's just been um, literally for um, a couple of uh, weeks in, in, in training. So we, we go through a vigorous training process. We perform a couple of these procedures on um, cadavers and then also on live pigs. And eventually when we brought it to South Africa, our first week we performed 10 operations. And uh, so we're going to provide the service every uh, six weeks or every month. We're going to uh, operate on, on, on uh, 10 patients, 10 to 15 patients uh, on each uh, session. So this isn't, I would assume then, if, if it's if 10 to 15 patients, it's not for everybody that's going to be having um, a prostate issue that you're going to be using this? No, definitely not. I think we're going to select them. Um, the nice thing is that that we, we can uh, provide uh, definitive surgery on prostate cancer. We can remove the, the, the whole prostate um, in a minimally invasive effort where previously we would provide maybe radiation therapy to the prostate. And I think for some of the patients, the prostate is either too big or the, the um, cancer dynamics is just um, not appropriate to do radiation therapy. But for, for these patients, we have now an alternative and um, <clears throat> to provide them whether we can actually uh, uh, remove the prostate cancer completely and you know extending their life to virtually um, the same as if they didn't have prostate cancer. I'm going to ask you something, which I don't know whether this is your field that you could actually answer this, but I have to ask this. Is this something the medical aides are going to come to the party and pay for? Do you know? Well, so far there's been a good response. It's positive response. Oh, wow. they, okay. see the, they, they see the advantages of it. Um, they, they're still in the beginning phases because, uh, you know, everything that's more expensive, they have to analyze it and, and you know, into the magnifying glass and see if it's cost effective. But I think in the long run, if they if they see the, the definite advantages over conventional therapy, um, they will, uh, you know, come to the party and 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 uh, you know provide that um, medical insurance for the better treatment that we're able to provide for the patient. I mean, there's all these little bonuses for them because there's shorter hospital stay, possibly less complications afterwards, which could potentially run up the medical bill so you know this in the long run even if it starts out being a little more than what they would be happy with in the long run it would probably save them i believe so i think in the, if you compare the the cost the total cost um we're not far away from from the other modalities that we currently use so if you do a cost analysis it's definitely the same and like you just said you know the, the you know the hidden benefits the financial benefits of uh, shorter hospital stay, getting back to work sooner. Uh, the patient's income is not compromised in that way, which is a, it's a huge thing for not just for the medical aid, but you have to think it's from the patient's side. Mm. Um, if you take that in consideration, that definitely this is something that um, <clears throat> should be considered for the benefit of the patient because that's why the medical aid is there, not for their benefit, but for the patient's benefit. Well, it sounds rather exciting. I mean, basically, I mean, you said it's it's very new here, and um, it's you know, as I said, also, it's not for everybody. So, if people out there possibly are booked in to have some sort of operation, 
maybe speak to your doctor because this, I don't think is, as you said, for every condition or every circumstance, but possibly speak to your, your doctor and maybe this is you. Maybe you could be the next one, but it would have to be their decision. They would have to tell you whether you are going to be benefiting from something like this. Um, don't just assume that it's for everybody. Exactly, yes. <clears throat> and um, we've currently launched our website. Uh, um, it will be active in, in a week in a, or two weeks. Uh, they can really visit the website and read more about it. They can also Google it. Our website is www.endourology.org.za. And um, they can also write me some emails, and I'll be glad to answer that. Oh, great. Okay, so what is your email address, uh, Dr. Conradi? Will they find that on the website when they go on there? They will find it on the website, yes. Okay. And it's or, otherwise, they can just directly email me at uh, Dr. Conradi at lapuro.co.za. Lapuro is L-A-P-U-R-O. .co.za. Yes. Okay, so and the the website you're saying about a week or two, and that's www.endourology.org.za. That's right. Oh, fantastic. And that will have all the information about the procedure and about the machine and all of that sort of thing. They will have all the information about the benefits of the robot. They can see, they can see video clips of the procedure itself. And, um, you know, just to put things in perspective, they could uh, also send in questions that we will answer for them. And then we can refer, we will give a list of all the doctors that's been trained on the robot, and then they can choose the doctor that's closest to them to then to uh, consult. And the procedure at the moment is only being done in Cape Town and in Midrand? Well, there's actually three robots. There's one robot in Pretoria at another oh, okay. hospital group, but the Medcare Hospital um, in Midrand and in Cape Town are the main um, hospitals that is driving this whole uh, effort at the moment. Well, it's all rather exciting. I remember last year when I spoke about the fact the machine had arrived and we were busy installing it then. And it's been quite quick that they've got it up and running. It hasn't been all that long. It's about a year, not even a year since it arrived. Yes, absolutely. I think Medgar did a great job at uh, Waterfall Metran to do this. Um, we started this initial um, planning preparation um, end of last year, like you just said. And um, they revamped uh, the whole theater completely, bringing new technology, new camera systems, the anesthetic machine, and everything is, is, is uh, lined up to make this robotic service um, work like clockwork there. So I, all that's all for, for Netgear for the effort. Gosh, well, hopefully now we'd be trying to get hold of him. We're having a bit of trouble getting through, but we're going to be speaking to Armando Lorero, and he, I think, was the first patient to have the prostatectomy with the system at the hospital in Midrand. Yes, exactly. You know, I performed the surgery on on the thirtieth of June, and he went exceptionally well. He was discharged, I think, on a, a third day, and um, he made a, a fantastic recovery. And yeah, it would be nice to get him on a line and chat to him. Well, we're hoping to. We're having a bit of problems trying to reach him on the phone, but we are still trying. But uh, Dr. Conradi, thank you very much indeed for your time and for telling us about this machine. Rather exciting news, and um, look forward to many more positive stories coming out of this and very happy patients i'm sure thank you karen thank you for the opportunity thank you for your time good night thanks you too good night to you Dr. Marius Conradi is a urologist at the Netcare Waterfall City Hospital and we were talking there about the new Da Vinci machine. It's a robotic technology that enables surgeons to perform highly intricate, minimally invasive, that's always a good thing, surgical procedures. And as I said, it's been introduced in Johannesburg and Cape Town by Netcare at the um, 
Netcare Waterfall City Hospital in Midrand and at the Christian Barnard Hospital here in Cape Town. And Dr. Conradi says there's also another one in Pretoria. So there's three of them in the country at the moment. And as we also said, please note that this is not for everybody. Unfortunately, it doesn't cover every possible case of somebody needing to have a prostatectomy, but there are in certain cases, it would be suitable. So if you're having, I'm sort of coming up to having one of these procedures done, I suggest you get in touch with your doctor and discuss with him the potential that this could possibly be something that you could use. And then if you'd like to find out more, unfortunately, only in about a week or two, he says, there'll be a website up. It's www.endourology.com. .org.za or if you have any questions anytime you can email him it's Dr. Conradi at lapuro it's l-a-p-u-r-o dot c-o dot z-a This Friday we're doing our bit for 67 minutes the SAFM team will be working very hard to make life a little easier and happier for the Isibindi Community Project in the Northern Cape. We will be broadcasting live and giving you an update on how we're changing lives. What will you be doing? Tweet us at SAFM Radio, hashtag Do67Minutes. SAFM, it's what Madiba would want us to do. Zolani Maola, you're listening to SAFM. Remember to catch Shab Shab Children's Show on Tuesdays and Thursdays at 10 minutes to 2. Keep it Shab Shab. Health Matters with Karen Key. There's the big picture and the small picture, and everything that's green in between. On The Enviro Show, Thursday nights on SAFM between 9 and 10. Health Matters with Karen Key. I'm so sorry about all of that. We're trying desperately to get hold of uh, our next guest and we're having a problem getting through to him. And I'm really wanting to talk to him because he's the very first patient that had this prostatectomy with this Da Vinci system at the Netcare Waterfall City Hospital in Midrand. And um, I hope maybe he's listening because we're having problems with his landline and his cell phone. I always ask for two numbers. And obviously tonight wasn't doing very well with either one of those. But in the meantime... um, let me just tell you about, refer back to the very first interview that we did this evening, which was the human papillomavirus. And it's something that I was speaking to Professor Henny Boerter about. And definitely need to, if you're interested in this, there is a website that you need to go and have a look. Because up until now, it was always considered to be a condition that affected girls and women, young girls and young women. And about a year or so ago, they introduced the HPV vaccine which people were being given, young girls were being given mainly before they left primary school. But now we learn that it's also something that is affecting men and boys. And up until now, there wasn't something that we were aware of. And unfortunately, again, um, for men, there are no signs. And it's one of those silent killers, the doctor liked to call them. And um, it's something that there are no symptoms for. So you just need to be very aware, possibly speak to your doctor about this if you're not 
happy about you know not knowing what's going on. With women, they can pick it up a little more easily. And as um, Professor Boerter said, there are now these vaccines that are available. So if you have uh, want to find out some more, let me just give you um, a website. It's www.hpv.co.za, and then you can find out all sort of information there. Um, right, I'm just, and then I was speaking after that to Mr. Peter Schlappe. He's the general manager of BD Eastern Southern Africa. It was rather interesting to talk to him because we were finding out about summits that they've been holding, looking out for the safety of healthcare workers. And I think it's something that needs to be taken care of sooner rather than later because we hear some horrible stories of people being infected with needle stick injuries. But there's also blood-borne diseases. There's airborne diseases. There's all sorts of things. And at last there are these summits that are happening quite regularly and uh, people are finding out now exactly what they're supposed to do. There's a lot more training, hopefully, that's going to be going on. And um, these healthcare workers are regularly at risk of serious infections. You know, we talk about the healthcare workers, we complain a lot, but they do an amazing job and we need to take care of them because if it wasn't for them, there'd be nobody to take care of us. So it's this sort of circle that we need to actually make quite sure stays intact. I think that we actually now might have our next guest on the line. I'm hoping so because I'm really, really keen to talk with him. Uh, yes, I think we did. I'm joined now by Armando Loreiro. He was the first person to have a prostatectomy with a da Vinci system at Netcare Waterfall City Hospital in Midrand. <coughs> Armando, good evening. Welcome to the show. Uh, good evening. Good evening. Glad we could find you. We had a bit of a problem there. But I, I can't understand it. I'm sitting at the cell phone and the landline. And for some reason, none of them are ringing. I'm well, thinking... Well, I wish you would just give me your number while you were talking. I could phone you oh, back. Oh, shame. But, uh, well, anyway, glad yeah. we've got you now. I've just been speaking with Dr. Marius Conradio. He was apparently the surgeon that performed this on you. This is 100% correct. He did, yes. Now, you, you're a very strange, not a strange, you're, you're one of those stories I'm very glad we're going to talk about. Because you're young, you were diagnosed with uh, prostate cancer. But just talk us through your story, because your story hopefully will be a lesson to a lot of other people that sometimes don't believe me when I talk on the show about the PSA isn't enough. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting. About about a year ago, I saw a urologist, um, and that urologist did the he did the PSA test on me. Um, and then, subsequent to that, six months after that, I went to a specialist physician who also did another PSA test, um, and he also did a scan. And all three times, no cancer was found. Um, so, of course, I'm thinking I'm walking around and, and everything is hunky-dory, and I'm very uh, sort of health-conscious. I've been in the gym industry for 30 years and um, from a very young age, and so I know the stories about prostate cancer and so on. So I was, I was checking continuously, you know, but I didn't know that if my dad had prostate cancer that my chance of getting prostate cancer was so much better. But anyway, being in the gym industry, I regularly got questions um, from members saying, what do you think about steroids and what do you think about the new um, hormone replacement for men, uh, a hormone replacement called Nibido, and what do you think of growth hormone and so on? And that's not my area of expertise. I know more about the training and the diet, et cetera, et cetera. And so I made a phone call to, um, I, I spoke to a doctor in Kenton Park here, uh, Dr. Boyens, um, I went and saw her for some flu that I'd had, and I said to her, you know, I really need to get some information from um, a doctor that, that knows about um, steroids, knows about growth hormone, knows about 
um, this Nambira because I keep getting asked these questions and I don't know the answer. And so she said, why don't you go and see Dr. Conradi? Um, he'll possibly be able to help you. So I made my appointment um, with Dr. Conradi not because I was sick or ill or sore or anything. I wanted to ask him 20 questions so that I can come back to the members and explain um, in detail with some accuracy um, how he felt about steroids and the, and the good and the bad about growth hormone and libido and so on. So I went and I saw him and um, I chatted him for 20 minutes or 30 minutes or whatever it was. It was a very sort of down-to-earth type of meeting, very simple. And then he said, look, man, how old are you? And I said, I'm 47. He says, why don't, while we're here, why don't we do a prostate check? And I said, okay, well, let's, let's do it. You know, I don't mind. Uh, uh, the, the, the more often I can check the prostate, the better. And then he checked the prostate. And he looked at me and he said, you've got nodules. I said, okay, um, doesn't sound very good, but wh- wh- what does that mean? He says, well, we'll have to do a biopsy. I said, okay. So I, I panicked a little bit. I was a bit afraid. Um, a bit scared, thinking, you know, how bad is this? What, what, what is this whole biopsy thing? Anyway, he phoned me a couple of days later after I'd done the biopsy, and um, he says, look, man, you've got stage one cancer. And it just blew my mind. And I thought, but, you know, just a year ago, I did, I did my blood test. I mean, what's my blood test now? And my blood test uh, showed 1.9, which was, which in effect, in fact, in effect is, a zero per chance, a zero chance of cancer. And, um, and there it was. And then the same day, um, I had to go and do a lung test and a heart test, like a run on the treadmill and do a lung test and all of that type of thing. So to make sure that I can go under surgery or an anesthetic for about four hours. So I went to the specialist physician and, um, and I said, I'm here to do this lung test. And he said, look, man, Seven months ago, I cleared you of prostate cancer. I cleared you. And do you mind if I took another look? And I won't even charge you for it. He says, because i just got to make sure. So I said, yeah. So he, he, he did another scan or that, that tummy scan that they do. And he says, Armando, I would have sent you home again today telling you that you have no prostate cancer. Based on your blood test, and based on the scan, I would have sent you home again today. I would have missed it. And uh, he said to me that from now on, when I have a patient who is 40, 43, 44, coming to do a general checkup, for sure, he will send the patient down to Dr. Conradi to have um, the other method of doing the prostate check. See, a lot of men try and get away from having to do that, you see. They think, oh, well, I've had the PSA and that's fine. But now you are walking proof that that isn't enough. You know, you know, I don't, I don't mean to be funny, but I want to tell you know, the listeners out there who think that this finger test that they do, this big, I don't know if it's an image thing or yeah, the, I think the, it what is. thing, yeah. but, I, but I just want to say, just, just, just get to yourself, just grow up or it could save uh, look your life. past that. It could, well, it you could know, save the, your life. You know, I think, you know, when I read the internet stories about men who didn't check their prostate uh, from the age of about 35 onwards, and they suddenly detect this prostate problem when they are 55. Now, you must understand that 55 today is like being 45 in the old days. Mm. You're not old. You are now actually in the prime of your life where you can go and tour the world and you've made your money 
and you can relax. The kids are out of school. Now is your time when you're 55. But because you left the finger test every six months, and the finger test is not bad. It's a, uh, so, oh, I'm not going to have a finger test. It's just ridiculous. So really, it is just absolutely pathetic. Now, unfortunately, um, I'm under, unfortunately, we are running very close to the end of the show, but yeah. before, I don't want to miss out okay. on your experience okay. with the Da Vinci machine and how amazing you were afterwards. You know, I'll just tell you that I, I, you say the Da Vinci machine, mm-hmm. but in my opinion, the combination of Dr. Conradi and the Da Vinci machine okay. is the trick because you could give me the Da Vinci machine <laughs> and, you know, you'd, right. you know, I'd probably do a better job with a coat hang and my wife's makeup and removing my own process, but I mean, I wouldn't even know which end of the machine would work, you know? So, so I think, I think the, for me, I can, uh, my experience, three days after the operation and the only discomfort that I had was the catheter. Gosh. The day, seven days after they took the catheter out, the Dr. Conradi said, go downstairs, drink some water, have some coffee, walk around, and just tell me what happens. If we are now, I think, in the 10th day or 8th day after the catheter has been removed, I've not wet my pants once. Not once. You know, my wife came home with all sorts of size of, of pads and nappies and we were prepared for this whole terrible thing, and this is now what's going to happen for I don't know how long, based on what I read on the internet. To this day, I've not weed in my pants once. I can go to the loo. I can start my wee. I can stop it whenever I want to. So I can stop halfway, which is an enormous thing. So when you say this operation, to me, it was like removing a wisdom tooth, actually. So I mean, in you, fact, less. yeah. So I mean, the, the, because that I think is also what worries a lot of people when they have this procedure, when they have the prostatectomy, is the, the after effects of all the things that could, you know, that you read. As like you, I mean, the internet's a, a great thing, but it sometimes can scare scare you half to death, and well, that, see, that's the problem. Well, you see, the thing is, there's forums out there. You know, you you're not reading ads or whatever. No. You're reading actual forums of actual yeah. experiences, and I feel sorry for these people. Well, well number one. First of all, a lot of them are in the situation that they're in is because they didn't check their prostate every six months from the age of 40. That's the first problem. You can't go and suddenly at 60 say, well, let me check my prostate now because at that time it could be stage four, stage five. It's too late, you know. You've now got other complications. So when your tooth hurts, have a filling done. Don't just leave it. I wonder, we yeah. actually, unfortunately, have come to the end of the show. But what I'm going to ask you is if I now, you know, I need to chat with you more about this. May we call you on another evening and, and chat through this a little bit further? You've got my number. I do. And, um, and you know what I think I should also maybe do? Um, I don't know if you agree. Anybody who, who, who wants to ask me a couple of questions, yes. if they want to send me an email. Absolutely. Um, just very quickly. I've got about 20 okay. seconds left. What is so your email address? Okay. It's Armando. A R M. A-N-D-O, Armando, at Family Fitness, with two S's, dot right. Perfect. We'll be in touch. Armando, thank you very much indeed for your time this evening. Okay. Armando Lorera was the first person to have a prostatectomy with the Da Vinci system at Netcare Waterfall City Hospital in Midrand. If you'd like to speak to him about it and find out any questions you might have, Armando at familyfitness.co.za. And that's it for Health Matters for this week. I'm Karen Key. Thanks for joining me. And I'll be back with you again tomorrow evening just after nine with time to travel, so join me then. Well, Stephen Kirk is up now with some nighttime music. Hello, Stephen.